Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin. And my name is Serena Tolino. In this episode, we are delighted to have as guest Ari Schreiber from the University of Toronto. Welcome, Ari. Thank you very much. Ari, tell us something about what do you do usually in your free time? What are your hobbies or um, yeah, something funny about you? Thank you. Well, it's been a little difficult, of course, the last couple of years um, to get fully out and about. But I would say I've been subsisting at least on my interest in music. I used to like to go to see shows, live shows, concerts, that kind of thing. But fortunately, with the advent of things like Spotify, you can kind of bring the show to yourself, look, curate, so to speak, playlists for yourself, explore, discover all different kinds of music, put them together. So that's been something I've really enjoyed. And of course, uh, who can go without your nightly Netflix to turn your mind off? But otherwise, I think, uh, you know, I'm in a new city. I, love, I like to walk around cities. Some people love like going out to the mountains to hike. I really like to just going around cities. I went to uh, Berlin this summer just to walk around the city for two weeks. Um, and so it's been great being in, in a new city where I can explore all different kinds of neighborhoods, walk in different places and do that kind of thing. So those are, those are a couple of the pandemic-friendly hobbies of mine, I would say. Ari, are you in the process of transforming your dissertation into a book project? Yeah, I am. I, um, I, so I finished my dissertation in June. I, I defended the dissertation in June. And the dissertation was about, focused on Sharia courts in Morocco, colonial era Morocco. And what it did was it followed a single dispute that occurred between 1928 and now I know until 1956. At the time, I believed it had only occurred to 1944 until I discovered even more litigation that occurred. But essentially what it was, it was an inheritance case that was adjudicated in parallel by the Sharia courts and the French courts. And they, of course, came to, to contradicting conclusions about whether the child of an enslaved woman has the right to inherit the father. And so I traced this very, very long, complicated case. And in doing so, I, was, I made an argument first about the nature of the prevailing Islamic legal tradition in Morocco in the 20th century, at least in the first part of the 20th century. And secondly, about uh, the nature of Islamic law as projected by the French courts and really the French regime in total, which is maybe not relevant to Sharia, except insofar as my ending hypothesis is that really that version of Sharia is what persisted into the nation state. And so this is the nature of my, my dissertation. And yes, I'm, I'm hoping to have it as a book manuscript in the next uh, couple of years. And what are you working on at the moment instead? At the moment, I'm working on two articles that I'm that are derived from my dissertation. The first is on the they're both on very specific concepts. The first is on the transactional concept of shufa, 
um, the right of preemption, the right of first refusal. This was something that was, of course, extremely common in the Sharia courts in Morocco. And what a lot of people don't realize is that unlike a lot of other colonial contexts, Moroccan Sharia courts were still competent for property norms during the colonial period. Unless it was a what was called a uh, publicly registered property, or in French, immatriculé. And when it was registered, then it automatically became uh, subject to French courts. But the French courts, the, the, the colonial system also codified Islamic property concepts, which is also something that is not very well known, because oftentimes we assume that the first codifications were these personal status codes that occurred in the middle of the 20th century. That's not entirely true. And so I'm looking at how the, this phenomenon of immatriculation, property registration, impacted the process of adjudicating shufa cases. Um, and it comes down to some very, I think one of the things that one encounters is that it's not necessarily night and day, but there's much more subtle processes of change that something like bureaucratization and public registers do to Sharia concepts. The other thing that I'm working on is that I will be presenting at the conference is this paper on a type of testimony that exists only in the Maghrib called Shahadat al-Lafif or Shahadat al-Lafifiyah, in which the idea is that instead of the standard two ordul or the two known reliable witnesses who attest to any legal act, one can get 12 Muslim laymen to concur in their statements on a single legal act to give it validity. And what this brings up a lot of really interesting issues uh, one of which is, of course, the nature of testimonial and documentary norms in the Maghrib, but also the the nature of this genre of Islamic legal literature called the Amal. And what we know now, I think a lot of Islamic legal scholarship has pretty well established that if we really want to understand Islamic law, we have to do so uh, contextually. And so we see even, you know, long ago, historically, many centuries ago, that there are different norms that are that are preferred in different places. But the Amal literature, uh, as it began in, in the Maghrib and Al-Andalus, and it became extremely important in Morocco, uh, is that certain practices become not only preferable, but obligatorily preferable if they bring maslaha meaning benefit over the Maliki Mashhur. And so in this case, we know that the Mashhur, the, the preferred ruling is that for any legal for any legal testimony, one must have two people who are characterized by Adala, meaning reliability. And that's why they're called Odul. The jurists, at least the narrative, what I do is I trace the narrative, the internal narrative justifying this. Just as a side note, there have been a couple of theories that this practice was just a holdover or something that was imported from, say, Amazigh practices or local tribal practices. And that's possible. Historically, it's possible. But frankly, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in how it's kind of reconstruction justified within this tradition. And in that sense, I sort of call it a historical normative narrative, meaning it's a historical narrative, but it's a, it's a narrative designed to, be, to have normative weight. And essentially, the narrative is that 
even you know as far back as Andalus, you had different people considering whether one can use unknown people as witnesses. You know, you had sometimes they would let women and children testify, they still do, in certain circumstances. And so basically at some point, they usually date it around the, the 10th Hijri century, the um, jurists realized that people were having trouble validating their transactions in places where there weren't Odul available, where there were not these reliable witnesses available who also, by the way, in Morocco held a distinct notary function. And so based on that very practical problem, how can people you know, live their daily lives if they can't authenticate their business transactions, their you know, marriages, their divorces, because you always have to be able to authenticate your divorce on the spot. But they realize that if we can gather enough people who individually testify to the same thing in concert, then they will achieve and you may and Tawatur is something that you may recognize, of course, from Hadith science. The idea being that enough people say the same thing that it's not possible that they would have lied. So what I do then is after studying this in Islamic jurisprudence, uh, or what, what I would call the Moroccan Maliki Islamic jurisprudence that justifies this based on Maliki Usul al-Fiqh of Amal and Istahsan um, and Maslaha, um, then I study how it's adjudicated in Sharia courts of colonial era Morocco. And I don't really do this with respect to anything colonial per se. Um, I'm really more interested in how it appears at that time. Um, and so I kind of look at the documentary features of it and some documents that I have, but then study it in cases that occurred in a colonial institution or as an institution that was created during the colonial period called the Supreme Council of Sharia Appeals. But it was nonetheless a, a, a body that even though it was created during the colonial period, it was adjudicated exclusively by preeminent uh, Fessi al-Qarawiyin tr- uh, trained jurists. And so I look at this across different cases in, in order to look at how they both keep it as a practically functional type of testimony and as a distinctly valid practice as an Islamic practice. And there's a few different ways that I look at this. One is looking at not just what these witnesses testify, but what they call the mustanad al-ilm, the basis of knowledge. Also, to the extent to which they can identify the object of testimony, the tarif, and how they investigate the witness qualities, which are not don't have to be the reliable qualities like odul, but there nonetheless have to be some standards. Um, and finally, looking at how it is impacted by the rural-urban binary that exists in the, the tradition, namely that one cannot testify unto the other. And so what I conclude essentially is that the, the judges take a very active approach to ensuring these documents' viability. They accept them as a form of testimony, but only if they meet a very particular threshold of what I would call plausibility. And so if they are implausible, the judges can use their discretion to reject it. And so in this sense, one of my main arguments by looking at this is not just about the nature of you know, this, this documentary form of testimony, this tradition, but it's also about how judges are very much deeply ingrained in a textual, contextual production of fact. 
And in doing so, they very much depend on their own social knowledge, their own contextual knowledge of what could be plausible for 12 people to be able to say concurrently. And they would routinely reject testimonies that they find to be implausible, socially implausible. So this is sort of the brief summary of that paper that I'll uh, hopefully be presenting uh, at our conference. Well, also your first, the first article that you mentioned that you're working on is hopefully going to be an item of discussion with other fellow participants in, in the conference, because we know of another fellow participant who works on Shufa or preemption in a British colonial context and post-colonial context. So it would be very interesting for the two of you to engage uh, and see if the colonial layer British versus French has an impact on how Shufa is uh, uh, framed. Yeah, you know, it's something, and there's been a few people who have written about why it was so important in colonial contexts. Like Brinkley Messick has done it, Guy Belhor has done it, I mean, basically because in principle it seems to prevent the free transacting and prevent even, you know, of course, Europeans from buying property if it was preempted. And one of the things that pointed out is that in the Maliki version of Shufa, if a, if a co-owner claims and takes an oath to the fact that they did not have knowledge that their partner sold it, basically they have the right indefinitely to come back to claim it until they gained knowledge of it. Once they gain knowledge of it, then they have a year. So the question becomes, well, how can you prove that someone didn't know something? How can you prove that someone gained knowledge of something? And then also, how can you prove that somebody went to, to claim it? And, and of course, once you bring the public registration into it, then this changes. And one of my questions is, does this change the essence of the, of the transaction? Does it change the underlying logic of it? And I do this, by the way, from a legal perspective. I don't do it really from a social perspective, which would be a little difficult for me to reconstruct. But I, I mean, one can imagine, you know, asking someone who bought a parcel of property only for someone else to come back 15 years later and say, hey, I was red, I was absent. I didn't know that this had happened. I'm sorry, but here I am and I, now I have the right to it. And if they take the oath to that effect, according to Maliki law, if they take the oath to the fact that they were absent and unaware of it, then they... Once they gain knowledge, then they have a year. But yeah, it's definitely definitely room for discussion. Thank you a lot, Ari, for being with us and looking forward to seeing you in London. Thank you. You guys likewise. Thank you. Thank you, Ari.